this morning, not to Daniel, but Nehemiah chapter 2, please. Nehemiah chapter 2. Okay. As I said at the outset of these messages, which was two weeks ago, because of the uh, amount of material we're going to have to cover, I can't give you a complete synopsis every week. So if you were not here, yeah, Tom's shaking his head. I don't know what to tell you if you weren't here the last two weeks. Uh, ask a neighbor afterwards to bring you up to speed. But uh, slide, please, John. You remember last week, we uh, took a tour through the scriptures on the trail of whom? Hello? Antichrist, yes. And we were looking for a golden key, and we found it in the lair, not of the Antichrist himself, but of his uh, mastermind, his leader, the devil. And it was in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. We now have everything we need to go back to, or almost everything we need, as you'll see, back to Daniel and see it fulfilled. But uh, slide, please. This is where we left off, if you remember, before we went on the search for the golden key. Uh, we figured that the 69 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 is actually weeks of years. So 7 times 69 is 483 years. We put quotes around it because we saw actual calendar years don't work out right. So that's why we put quotes around it. And we were able to confirm which decree to rebuild Jerusalem uh, verse 25 referred to. It was the decree in here in Nehemiah, which we're looking at right now, and the date was 444 B.C. Right? That I think you guys are burned out from the Holy Spirit class. Okay. Now look at your handout. And already, you know, it, it doesn't take long before somebody recognizes a typo. I must have stared at the thing six times and didn't see anything. I handed it to Noad. He came right back to me and said, did you mean to type this? And I said, no. It's a very simple one. You see the uh, one, two, three, five. Can anybody guess what's wrong with that? Very good. Now, the problem is mine has five. See, mine has one, two, three, four, five. I later deleted four because I thought it was unnecessary. And so you're going to have to change the comment underneath number five where it says adding number four to number five. You're going to have a difficult time doing that. So we'll add number three to number five on your sheet. Okay? <clears throat> so, uh, I, I'm getting excited. I don't know about you, but we're about to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it's going to be remarkable when we get there. But uh, the first thing we're going to do, uh, just to review, verse, uh, point number one. Let's go back up to the top. Let's, the visitors can have some review. Here's the verse. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. That's the one we want to fulfill, right? Okay, so we added 7 to 62, point number 1. We got 69 weeks of years. We found from our golden key, point number 2, 
that one year is 360 days. We did that last week. Now, here, and this is where uh, the believer's heads start reeling, although it's not calculus, it's simple arithmetic. But you multiply it out, 69 weeks of years, with the year being 360 days, you get 173,880 days. Okay, don't, don't worry about it if you don't believe that. Check it at home with your calculator. Okay? The point is we can take that now and apply it to this date and see what we come up with on the right it had better be something to do with the life of jesus or we're in trouble okay if we do that first of all let's look at what year we end up with just to see if we're close and if we do that we end up with starting at 4444 bc we add the 173880 days to that we get 33 a.d that's interesting now, we would have thought it would have been the birth of Christ, wouldn't we? But it is in his life. In fact, it's, it's the end of his life. Now, that's interesting. We know God doesn't lie, and he doesn't make mistakes. So, we, we need to do a little more research here to find out exactly what's going on. So, the reason I had you turn to Nehemiah is, first of all, let's, let's try to pin down the month. And if you'll notice here, it says in Nehemiah, I had you turn here, Nehemiah 2, verse 1, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, and so on. So we only have the month. Oh, no. Starting to look bleak again. We only have the month. What are we going to do? Not only that, do you, do you know when Nisan is? I know one person here does. It moves, by the way, relative to our calendar. And it's roughly uh, March and April, depending on what year it is. We know exactly when it was in the time of Artaxerxes. And so uh, you'd think, oh no, we're starting to get fuzzy again. No, we're not really. If you look there, at the, you'll see a list of five dates. You see them there? It turns out that those are the only five possible dates because Nisan first in 444 B.C., which is March 5th, if you look at your sheet there, if we add our 173880 to that, we end up at March 30th, 33 AD. That's just four days before the Lord Jesus was crucified. Interesting. So we can kind of set a window here as to which date is the right one by saying we can't go past April 3rd, 33 AD. That's the end of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus until he was raised from the dead, of course. So we have five dates to choose from there. Which one is the correct one? Well, I said before, the word of God is inspired right down to every word. We believe here in the verbal inspiration of God. And if you look at the top of your sheet, what did the prophecy say? It said, until Messiah what? Now that's interesting. There's a clue right there, and we went right past it and didn't even notice it. Messiah the Prince. I want you to notice it doesn't say Messiah the King. Isn't that interesting? Now, if it had said Messiah the King, what should that refer to? The Millennium. For some reason, God did not use the ordinary Old Testament word when he talked about King David and King Solomon and all the other kings. It's a very unusual word, and it only occurs a couple of places. Why did he do that? 
for a very important reason. Since we've already discovered from our sheet here that the prophecy is pointing to the end of the life of the Lord Jesus. It's not pointing to his birth, it's pointing to an event in his life. You understand that? It's pointing to an event. And it has something to do with Messiah the Prince. Now, we need to put in our thinking caps, and uh, if you're familiar with Scripture, think about the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus, because that's what we have here as our choices. Is there an event in the life of the Lord Jesus that we can think of that might fit the bill of Messiah the Prince? Where it sounds like he's not king, but he's like a potential king, you know, like a prince. Is there an event like that? Uh, very good. Yes, it's called the triumphal entry. And it turns out it happened on the first day in the list. Monday, March 30th, 33 AD. Let's look first of all at the prophecy of it in the Old Testament. Go to Zechariah. Right turn from Nehemiah. Right toward the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah. And now, things are going to start opening up for us. There are going to be scriptures coming alive with new meaning that you never saw before. As we see this actually acted out in the life of the Lord Jesus. Zechariah 9.9. This is the prophecy that points to the actual event that fulfills the first 69 weeks of Daniel. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy was fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. And if you're familiar with this passage, as you think about it, you know, this is a very unusual event in the life of the Lord, isn't it? When else did he come openly that way and say, here I am, I'm your king? He didn't. In fact, he avoided it. When they wanted to make him king, if you remember, he refused. So it's it's neat. It helps us understand why this event took place. You understand? Are you following me? This is the end of the 69 weeks right here. And we're going to go through this passage and a little bit after it. And what I want us to notice is the behavior of the Lord because we're going to see at this time he is very conscious of the 69 weeks and that it is ending right now. In fact, he is the one who brings it to an end. It's like he has his prophetic watch on and he looks at it. And Jesus knows that on this day, when they're coming near the uh, Mount of Olives, Jesus looks at his watch, and he knows, finally, the 173,880 days since Nehemiah brought the cup to Artaxerxes, it's today. And that's why he does this very strange thing of telling the disciples to go and get that donkey. It's weird otherwise, isn't it? It doesn't fit in with the rest of the scriptures. But he's doing it because the time has come now for the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. So, as we read through this passage and the ones after, I want you to be looking for three things. First of all, 
we know that this last week here is yet to be fulfilled. It's way in the future from this point. I believe it's very near to us right now. And so Jesus is literally going to stop the clock for Israel. We're going to see that happening. And he's going to take the place of favor away from Israel and transfer it to the Gentiles. And that's the age we live in. We're still in that age. There's a gap. There's a huge gap. We're going to show it later on a slide between the first 69 weeks and the last one. Jesus stopped the clock for Israel. And we're still in that little gap right there where that arrow is pointing on the right. And we're living in an age, you know, we're so used to this. Here I am, a Gentile, preaching to mostly Gentiles about Jesus, a Jew. Try to remember, this is unusual. This was hidden in the Old Testament. They, no one had any idea this was going to happen. It was a mystery that God had. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm not just, just preaching about Jesus, a Jew. I'm preaching about God, the Son, who became a man and died for your sins and mine. God had a lot bigger things in view than having a king sit on a throne for Israel. He had in view saving the world from hell. Isn't that great? It's no wonder that when Paul thinks about these things, in particular what God did here, and opening up that big gap, and having now the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, he ends Romans chapter 11 by saying, Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. And he ends up in a hymn of praise as he thinks about what God has done. So we're going to watch as we read through this. Jesus, we're going to see him. It's really neat. He, he literally does. He cuts off Israel. No one knows what's going on but Jesus. He does it right before their eyes. Secondly, we're going to see him actually begin the transition from Jews to Gentiles right here. Thirdly, if you remember in Daniel, the next thing that happens, it says, after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Cut off. What's that? The crucifixion. That's right. That's the very next thing in the prophecy. And you're going to see Jesus' consciousness of it, that as he realizes the clock has run out, now his time has come. Okay. So, Matthew 21, verse 1. So remember now, think, uh, think in, your, in your mind what Jesus is thinking about right now. He knows that 69 weeks has ended and it's time for the cross, it's time to cut off Israel, all those other things now have to happen starting right now. They couldn't happen before this. When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Isn't this neat? I mean, even the guy that owns the donkey, I think I'd say, What do you want with my donkey? That's my donkey. You know, are you going to bring it back? What are you going to use it for? You see, but God is sovereign. And if he can turn the heart of kings like he turns the rivers, he can certainly uh, turn the heart of a donkey owner. And so that's what he did. So obviously the guy didn't put up any fuss. Um, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet, saying, this should be familiar to him. We just read it in Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is wonderful, because here, this is the only prophecy in the life of the Lord Jesus 
that was fulfilled that plainly states he was the king of Israel. But you remember I made a big deal that the word in uh, Daniel is really more like prince. And that's exactly what happened, as you know. Because he came and they didn't recognize him as their king. He was offered as their king, but they wanted none of that. What did they say later when they crucified him? We have no king but what? Caesar. Whoa. That's right. We will, have, uh, we will not have this man to rule over us. Right? Okay? He's the prince. Messiah the prince. What a pr- Isn't that neat how God's word is perfect until Messiah the prince. What a perfect word to choose to describe this scene. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey. They put the clothes on it. Uh, he went riding in the verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You think, wow, this is great. You know, this is really, it's called the triumphal entry. I don't know what's triumphal about it. He's rejected. What happens? When he came, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? This is critical. Listen to the answer. So the multitude said, not this is our Messiah, our King, who he is, which the prophecy was foretelling. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And you read that and you think, I don't see what the problem is. There's a big problem there. He's on the order of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the others. He's a great man. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. That's good. But he's not the Messiah. He is not our king. And as I said later, they plainly say it. We have no king but Caesar. And so they rejected him here. And it's in keeping with the stopping of the clock because as they rejected him, he rejects them. And he cuts them off. And so we'll just look at a few. What's really fun is to read the rest of of Matthew from here to the crucifixion. And over and over you're going to see the consciousness of Jesus as he is aware of the ending of the 69 weeks and the cutting off of Israel. But we'll look at just a few of them. First thing, it happens, verse 12. What does he do? An act of judgment. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and and so on. Very first act recorded by Matthew. That's significant. You understand? He's judging Israel. They've rejected him. He's rejecting them. Uh, Then he goes back to um, Bethany. This is significant. Twice in, in Matthew, we see two very unusual constructions that you don't normally see in the Gospels. We see a double departure. Look at verse 17. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Small thing, but it's unusual wording. It's not usually like that. It's a double departure. He's leaving them. Okay? Verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Do you see the significance of that? What's the fig tree represent? Israel. Notice when he does it. Right at the end of Daniel's first 69 weeks. Do you see that? You know, we read this, and I remember when I was a believer and I first read this, I thought, man, why is Jesus picking on that poor innocent fig tree? It seems unfair. 
He is showing something. He is doing as God. He is judging the nations. In fact, you know, I think we're so dull to the greatness of this event, we lose sight of just how stupendous it really is. I'll tell you, it's as great as if he'd split the earth into her. There was a crack in the sky. He put a great crack in time. He literally stopped the prophetic clock and turned from a nation which for all indications was going to be his favored nation for the rest of whatever. And he laid them aside. That's, that's exciting. And we see God himself in the flesh acting it out here. And how significant. He's, he found nothing on it but leaves. No fruit. Isn't that a description of the nation? No fruit. Just outward show. Okay. Uh, we're not gonna, we can't go through all of this stuff. I'd love to, like I said, go all the way up to the crucifixion. Do that sometime. Read the rest of Matthew up to the crucifixion with this idea that Jesus is well aware that the time has come. The jig is up, so to speak. It's just uh, time for him to get crucified now. The 69 weeks has expired. But uh, one of my favorites is here in the uh, next chapter, or pardon me, still in the same chapter, verse 33, in the parable of the landowner. Listen to this. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned, killed one and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus was crucified outside the walls of the city and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? You see? You see what Jesus is thinking about? The nation. The nation Israel. They're the vine dressers. Who are the, who are the servants that were sent and killed? The prophets. Yes. One after another, God sent the prophets. They killed one, stoned another. They cut Isaiah in two. They stuck Jeremiah down into a, 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 a muddy pit and killed lots of others. They didn't want to hear it. And then when God sent his son, they killed him. Actually, he's prophesying because he's not dead yet. But it's, it's very clear. He's talking about the split right there. He's about ready to judge the nation. I love this passage because Jesus asks them. <laughs> this is great. It's like um, Nathan the prophet, you know, speaking to David about David's own sin. And David was blind to his own sin, if you remember, right? And David jumps out of his throne and he says, as I live, this man deserves to die. Remember that? And all Nathan has to do at that point is say, you're the man. Well, Jesus lets them speak. He asked them in verse 40, what will the owner, that is, God, do? Verse 41, this is their answer. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Whoa. 
That's incredible. That's a prophecy out of the mouths of babes. That's exactly what he was doing right now before their eyes. He was taking the place of favor away from the nation of Israel and giving it to the Gentiles. Isn't that great? If you're familiar with Romans 11, Paul describes it this way. He says, uh, there's this tree and the nation of Israel is the original branches in the tree. And Paul says, what God has done, he has literally broken out those original branches. That's what Jesus is doing right here. You can see him with his hands grabbing hold of the nation and literally breaking them out of the tree. And it says he has grafted in Gentiles in their place. And that's where we are today, in the place of favor. And the Jews are blinded. God has judicially blinded the nation of Israel until the time of the Gentiles is over with. Okay, uh, verse 42, he continues. Jesus said to them, he doesn't uh, deny what they said, by the way. They, they, what they said is exactly right. And he confirms it this way. If you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's wonderful. I love the fact that he picked that verse. Who's the stone? Jesus. They have rejected him. That's what he says. And he says he's become the chief cornerstone. And later, God uses that picture of the church and says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Isn't that great? And then 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoa. There it is. And of course, the nation bearing the fruits of it is the Gentiles. Okay, um, let's look at the chapter 24, or pardon me, chapter 23, verse 37. Most of this chapter is uh, devoted to the seven woes on the Pharisees, which again is in keeping with this timing in uh, collaboration with the uh, 69 weeks of Daniel. Did we lose it? Okay. Right. Yeah, maybe we'll lose it periodically. Okay. I'm moving every couple of minutes. Okay. Okay, uh, chapter 23 is devoted, a lot of it, to the judgment of the Pharisees. And it's interesting, I have written in my uh, margin in this chapter, leaves, leaves, leaves. Because as you read his, his uh, uh, criticism of the Pharisees, he keeps uh, judging them for their outward appearance, but no inward reality. He, for example, he calls them whitewashed tombs. Now, what a graphic picture. You know, outside, all white, looks great, you know, Nice, righteous guy. Inside, he says, nothing but dead men's bones. What a graphic picture. Uh, but then, this is uh, remarkable in context, again, of, of the uh, split here. Go ahead and uh, do the next slide, by the way, John. We can go ahead and put our date there. Okay, there we are to the day. March 30th, 33 A.D. 
In verse 37, the Lord Jesus gets out from the city a little bit and he looks at it from a distance, probably the Mount of Olives. And uh, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. The judgment is over. Do you understand? He's already cut them off. He's looking back now. And it's just a matter of time before the physical event occurs. Titus in 70 AD when he levels the whole city and the sanctuary. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, verse uh, 39 is a key because of the one big word, until. If we had just gone in the judgment of the fig tree, we would say, like a lot of poorly informed Christians, that God is done with the nation of Israel and all the promises in the Old Testament now apply to the church. We could just use this one word. Jesus says, until you say. And in Romans 11, he plainly says, they will say that. And so there is a time coming for this nation. But right now, he says, the house is left desolate. Key word, if you remember from Daniel, remember that word was all over the place, desolate. Remember? The abomination of desolation and so on, talking about uh, the terrible time during the uh, tribulation. Okay, uh, chapter 24, verse 1. We have this second uh, phrase of double departure. It's a strong indication that he's leaving them, is the point. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples uh, pointed out the buildings and so on. This is familiar ground. We were here uh, just last week, verse 15. This is significant because of all the Old Testament scriptures Jesus could have used to describe the tribulation, which is what he's talking about here in this section. You know which one he chooses? Daniel. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, and so on. Wow. And um, finally, verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. We're back to the fig tree again. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's talking about the end times again. And here's the fig tree. And he promises that it's going to put forth shoots later. Actually, you know, it's already begun to put forth shoots in that they're back in the land. They're a prosperous nation. You know, you sit here and you say, yeah, I know the nation of Israel. I'll t- wanted them pushed back into the sea. You say, well, it's the ingenuity of... Uh, Israel, no, it's the power of God in setting the stage for the last time to pick up where he left off in this last week that's going to tick off. Okay, I wish we had time. Uh, The rest of the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar to Matthew, but we're going to look at Luke in just one uh, passage, verse uh, chapter 19.
This is Luke's version of the triumphal entry, which takes place in verses 28 through 40. And here we see another comment from the Lord Jesus. Verse 41, after the triumphal entry, so this is right at the end of the 69 weeks. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Whoa. You see the deeper meaning of that. He's saying, this day, the end of the 69 weeks, here I am, your king. This is your day. And they didn't even see it. And so he looks ahead to the next thing mentioned in Daniel, of course, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 43, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children with you within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And of course, it's still 37 years away, but in Daniel, it's the very next thing. And so you can see he's, he's thinking of Daniel here. Okay, lastly, uh, John chapter 12. This is wonderful in its own way. It's quite different from the synoptics. John chapter 12. The triumphal entry occurs here in verses 12 through 19. And the very next thing recorded in John is so significant in light of Daniel's 70 weeks. Verse 20. Just to show you, uh, verse 15 is the, is, is the Zechariah passage. You see that? And so it, that's the section of the triumphal entry. He's just come in. He's been rejected. And the first thing John records is verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks, Gentiles, among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew... And Philip told Jesus, this is so significant because Israel has rejected their Messiah and here are Gentiles coming and saying, we want to see Jesus. You see, the transition is already beginning. There's great interest in the Gentiles. The Jews could care less. And instead of Jesus saying, oh yeah, sure, send them here, he says a very strange thing. What's his first response? Verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he talks about his death. Why does he do it when these Greeks come? It's because he recognizes now. He's cut off the nation of Israel. The Gentiles are coming. We're done with the 69 weeks. The very next thing after the 69 weeks was Messiah shall be cut off. And then he gives the kingdom of God to a, Gentile, to a nation bearing fruits of it, the Gentiles, and here they are. And it's, it's so significant because if, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John before this, time and time again, it says they couldn't lay hands on Jesus because what? His time had not yet come. And it says that over and over, his time had not yet come. And you read that and you think, okay, how do you know when his time has come? Well, he knows because the 69 weeks have run out on this day. And, and he waited for the event when the Gentiles came and asked for him. That's it. That's the clear demarcation point. And it's just a matter of a couple of days now for Judas to go out and make arrangements with the high priest and the leaders, get his uh, 40 pieces of silver, and then have him arrested on Thursday. 
just three days later. Okay. Uh, go ahead and uh, do the next slide there, uh, John. So this, now we can look at the 70 weeks of Daniel and we see plainly there were the 69 weeks for Israel. They terminated at this point, the triumphal entry. We're now in a period of we don't know how many weeks of years. It's still going on. It's been almost 2,000 years. It was hidden. It's called a mystery, hidden in God before the foundation of the world in Ephesians. And we still have one week left for Israel to be back in the center of God's dealings. And there, it's going to, right now we're in the period where Gentiles are preaching Christ. Here we're going to have Jews, believing Jews, preaching Christ throughout the world, undergoing great persecution. And I believe it's very, very near. Go ahead and do the next slide. Just uh, a reminder, after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So the, the cross did indeed happen right away. Okay. Next. When you go into a, uh, a shopping mall or something, you can look up a directory and they'll have a little thing. You are here. Right? Okay, well, that's where we are. And we're closer than you think. If you remember when I preached the Revelation, I tried to bring in current events as much as I could. And it's hard, I'll tell you. Every week, there is something new. It's, it's like events are converging on... By the way, the next event to happen is the rapture. And events are converging so fast, I can't keep up with them. And there have been two biggies since I preached on Revelation just a year ago uh, that have been in the news. One of them was just last week. In fact, I had just enough time to copy the image off of the CNN report and get it onto my viewer yesterday to show that I don't know how we can get any closer until the believers are gone and you that don't know Jesus Christ are left behind. The first one, um, go ahead and put it up there. I'm not going to, it's a pretty picture. You remember we talked about the wilderness where God is going to preserve the nation of Israel. Remember that last week? This is what it looks like if you've never seen a picture of it. This edge right here is the cliff on the edge of Masada. You've probably heard of that. And in the back, if you can tell, just barely, there's a darker blue on the bottom and lighter blue on the top. The darker blue is the Dead Sea. And actually there are hills back behind it, actually mountains behind that you can't see very well there. But this is the area where God is going to preserve Israel during the last three and a half years. Are you with me? You remember that? Turn to Revelation 12. This is where we found the golden key last week, if you remember. And the key was in Satan's lair, wasn't it? Now, right after the key in verse 6, we read on, And we saw, here's um, verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, right here, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Remember that? And this is where they're going to be hiding out. Somewhere in this area, God will miraculously protect the nation of Israel from the Antichrist. But uh, the devil's going to do everything he can to get to them. And somehow, apparently, I don't know, troops are not going to be able to go in here or something. And so he tries something else. Verse 15. 
So the serpent, that's the devil, spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Whoa. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And that's all we know. Just those two verses. And your mind can run wild on what that's going to be. And if you remember when I preached the Revelation, I speculated, I said, this right area right here, the Dead Sea, is a thousand feet below sea level. Do you know that? That's a thousand feet below sea level right down there. It's the lowest place on earth as far as physical earth below the level of the sea. And in fact, much of the wilderness where they're going to be hiding is below sea level, particularly down at the bottom of the ravines and the gorges. And so I, if you remember, I speculated. You remember I brought in my, my TPC, my tactical pilotage chart, and yeah, John's nodding, and I folded it up and I said, wouldn't it be interesting if what that's indicating is the devil is going to, through the Antichrist, build a canal from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River Valley and the water would come gushing in because it's a thousand feet lower and it would just flood the place up to a thousand feet deep right here and all along uh, the wilderness area where there are canyons and gorges and that's as far as it went Noad came up to me after the message last week and he said by the way did you um, hear about that uh, canal project yeah that uh, they're thinking about in Israel I said no tell me about it and he told me what he knew I went on the web. I couldn't believe it. This picture here is the background for a website to where they are doing that very thing right now. It started in the 70s. If you're familiar with the Middle East, you've got Israel here. Mediterranean's over here, right? Israel. Jordan's back over here. Mostly landlocked, very arid, and they have difficulty getting fresh water, drinking water. And they had serious droughts in the 70s. And Jordan began to say, look, we need to do something to solve this water problem. On top of that, the Dead Sea level is lowering one foot per year. The level of the water in it. And of course, it's world famous. And people don't want it to, to get bad. And in the year 2000, they estimated that within 10 years, that would be 2010, serious irreversible ecological damage was going to occur in the environment so that it could never be repaired. Since the 70s, Jordan's been saying, we need to build a canal to get water from the Mediterranean into the Dead Sea. There we can build a desalination plant. That means take the salt out of it and pump the fresh water to Jordan. And since Israel is you know, right on the border, we'll send water to Israel too. Great idea. Israel had, didn't really didn't want a part of it. They had all the fresh water they needed. Two years, or two years ago, 2002, things began to look a little difficult for Israel as well. And they're, they're also concerned about the Dead Sea. And so they finally signed an agreement with Jordan to dig the canal. Do the next slide. Okay, this is off the web. This is from one of the contractors who's actually studied the project. And you see the dark lines? The one on the top, that's the one I, this one right up here, that's the one I, just out of the blue, I said, wouldn't it be interesting if they did that? That was a proposal at that time, and I didn't know it. From the Mediterranean to the Jordan uh, Valley, it's below sea level at the end of that black line, and it'd flow right down to the Dead Sea. Well, they studied that and rejected it. Similarly, another one down south right here from the Mediterranean, they rejected that. Everyone now, all the companies have settled on this route. Actually, it's from the Red Sea. 
which is down south, also at sea level. And this is the one they're working on. They've already estimated it to be from four to six billion dollars. And companies, of course, are clamoring to get that contract. Next slide. <coughs> this is another website, and this is uh, one of their graphics. There's the Red Sea over that little blue thing. And see the level? This is uh, elevation. So you can see it's at sea level, zero. Here's the Dead Sea over here, 400 meters below sea level. See it over here? And you've got a big pumping plant over here to get the water up over. There's some mountains that are like uh, two or 300 meters high. Get them up over there. And then uh, there's a huge descent now into the wilderness, the big drop. There's the desalination plant. And there's the proposed two pumping facilities, the top one going to uh, Jordan and the bottom one going to Israel. And it's very near to getting accepted. And it could start any time. Now, obviously, it'd be a very small thing to just turn on the pumps and open the sluice gates and just let this thing just shoot the water right down into the wilderness. That's chilling. Because in this one, we have a timeline. They want to get it done before the Dead Sea starts to be irreversibly damaged. Right now, they estimated 2010. That's six years away. If this is, if this is the mechanism the Antichrist uses, he's not going to need it for another four or five years. I mean, we're talking <laughs> pretty close there. Um, the next one, this was just last week. Uh, if you remember, I, I mentioned last week that the EU was about to add 10 countries. They okayed that. 10 new countries have joined the European U Union. If you've been around long enough, you remember the common market back in the 50s when Euro European nations began to get together for a common cause to help each other. Then it became the uh, EEC, the European Economic Community, then just the EC, European Community, and now it's the EU, the European Union. If you remember last week, I said, it's clear from Scripture the Antichrist will rise out of the revived Roman Empire. And we've been seeing the Roman Empire come back together before our very eyes in these days. This is the stamp that France, they're always ahead of everybody, they had this thing printed up before the vote on the ten nations, assuming that they would be accepted. So this includes the ten. That's the European Union as it exists today. When I looked at that stamp online, I said, that reminds me of something. I kept looking and I thought, you know what? This looks like the old charts in my history book where it has a map of the Roman Empire. Doesn't it? Wow. There's still a few little spots, but generally speaking, it's, it's the Roman Empire. Revived. We have Israel back in the land. We have the Roman Empire being revived. We have canals being dug to the wilderness to bring water in. We have uh, the professing church filled with millions of people who profess that don't know Jesus. They're going to be left behind when the rapture comes. And that's the great falling away, the apostasy spoken about in Thessalonians. I don't know how much closer we can get. Next slide. <clears throat> As I thought about it, I thought about it this way. The next event on the calendar we know for sure is the rapture. For those of you that don't know, the rapture is very simple. Jesus Christ is going to sh shout from the heavens. He's not going to be visible, but believers are going to respond to that shout involuntarily because he's just going to snatch them right up in the twinkling of an eye, it says. So you're not going to see it. And he's also going to uh, raise the dead in Christ, the, the, the Christians who have died. 
we're all going to join the Lord, it says, uh, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the rapture. That's the next event. And when um, the 69 weeks ended, it was a long way off, we know now. It was over two thousand, almost 2,000 years away. And I think of these as the uh, threads of events that God was bringing together to set the stage for the end times. And I've already mentioned some of them this morning. And go ahead. I think we're here now. I, the stage is set. I don't see how we can wait any longer. Jesus, he, he, as he said in Matthew, he's even at the door. You know, when somebody's coming into a room, they're at the other side and they put their hand on the door. You can hear, hear them hit the doorknob. I think that's where we are. And if you're a believer, that should delight you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, nothing can be clearer. The, the purpose, one of the purposes of looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel was to show you God's word is exact. And he, just as that first 69 weeks was fulfilled, when Jesus got on that donkey, I'll tell you, it wasn't just to the day. I believe it was to the very hour from when Nehemiah came in with that cup. He knew. So there is. Uh, on the right side of the previous charts, one week left to tick off. And there's, I don't see what else God can do to get ready for it other than get us out of the way as believers and start the clock ticking again. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Where would we be without it? We know you have these things in, in your word. For us who are believers, Lord, they're a comfort. And for those who don't know you, they are put there as a warning. They're a warning that right now those who don't know you may flee from the wrath to come. We thank you this, that there's a hiding place and it's in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, if there's anyone who has lingered outside, who has kept Jesus at arm's length, who has said with the Jews, I will not have this man to reign over me, that they might put a stop, climb down from the throne themselves and put Jesus there. We ask it in his name. Amen.